I invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul begins this chapter by reminding the Corinthians that he made known to them the gospel. That's verse 1 of chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians. The gospel which he preached, and he says that they received. That's an important and integral part of worship. The preaching and the receiving of the Word of God, the good news, the Gospel. But he goes on to say in verse 3, that he delivered to them that which was of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. That is of first importance in the preaching of the gospel. The good news is that Christ died for our sins. And what that means, as we saw in that lengthy series on forgiveness, is that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, the covering of our sins. Our sins are therefore forgiven, and we are reconciled to God. Christ died to pay the sin debt that you and I all had. Were it not for His sacrificial death, we would have no hope of being able to go into the presence of a holy God when we die. But because He died for our sins, we as believers can go to glory. But then He says that He was buried, verse 4. We know that he was placed in the tomb and that stone was rolled in front of the tomb and sealed and there Jesus' body remained for the three days, Friday, Saturday, and then he was raised again on the third day. This has been the study that we're looking at for the last several weeks. Christ, we know, died for our sins. He was indeed buried, and He rose again on the third day. But, He did not immediately ascend back to heaven. In fact, we saw from the book of Acts that He spent 40 days still with His disciples, still on earth in his resurrected body prior to ascending to heaven. So, our Lord Jesus was raised from the dead and he did many more things while he was raised from the dead. This is what the Apostle Paul begins to show us next. Not so much of what he did, but the fact that that he appeared to many to show that he was raised from the dead. Some of the accounts, when he appeared to his disciples and to others, we have a record of, and we know some of what he said. We studied most recently from the Gospel of John in chapter 20, our Lord dealing with Peter, and how he restored this servant as he forgave him for his denial of him. 
and taught him and showed him that he must feed and tend the sheep. We have a record of that account of our Lord's appearance to the disciples. We call that his appearance on the shore. Remember, it was the Sea of Tiberias. And he taught his disciples to do what you were trained to do. Not to be fishers of fish, but to be fishers of men. He transformed them from being fishermen, in the literal sense, to being shepherds, in the spiritual sense. From being actual fishermen, to being shepherds, who lead and feed the sheep of God. We have that account, and we looked at that account. But there are some things here that the Apostle Paul mentions that we don't have recorded in the Scriptures, in his appearances. And I know I say this, and I, think, uh, I hope that you understand that I don't mean it any, in any disrespectful way whatsoever, but I wish we did have more of these accounts. I wish I knew what Jesus said when he spoke first to Simon Peter. I wish I knew what he said to those 500 people at one time. But I want for us to look and kind of unpack what the Apostle says about those appearances of our Lord, since that's the focus of our study. The focus of our study right now is the ongoing work of the resurrected Christ, prior to his ascension. And Paul here tells us that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That's verse 5. Now I want to do something here before we actually look at what Paul says. How did Paul know this? How did Paul know who Jesus appeared to. Because Jesus had long since ascended back to heaven before Paul became Paul. He was Saul, remember? Breathing fire and arresting and persecuting the Christians. He used to be Saul, and then his heart and life was changed, and that's part of what we're going to see and the ongoing work of the ascended Christ. But that's for another message. But before Paul was Paul, he didn't know about who Christ appeared to. He wasn't there. He wasn't one of the original disciples. He wasn't one of the twelve apostles. He came later on. So how did he know this stuff? Part of it is right in the text. Look what he says in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now what does he mean by that? What I also received. To understand what he's talking about, I ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, as we are now going to see the Apostle Paul in the seminary of Arabia. That's what my brother Ernie used to call it. Paul at the seminary 
of Arabia. Look down, if you would, please, to verse 11. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me, so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. What happened in Arabia? This is what the Apostle tells us. He says, verse 11, that the gospel which was preached by me was not according to man. It was not by man's teaching. This is actually one of those times, if you could say it reverently, when God kind of pulls the curtain open a little bit and lets you look into some things that are really supernatural. Paul did not learn these things from Gamal, his pharisaical teacher. He did not learn these things from the other apostles. But rather, what he says here is that he learned these things directly from Jesus. He did not, he says in verse 12, I neither received them from man, nor was I taught it. So it wasn't his pharisaical teacher. It wasn't from the apostles. And look what he says. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, he went out to Arabia, and apparently it was for some time, it was for some time that he was in Arabia, and he met there with Jesus and received a revelation from Jesus himself. He was apparently there, visited by Jesus, in a manifestation of Jesus following his resurrection. A supernatural meeting with the Son of God. Look what he says in verse 14. That he was advancing in Judaism and all of these things, 
But God set him apart, and in verse 16, to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him. God set him apart, and he has this great meeting with the Lord Jesus. This was amazing. That perhaps for a period of months and even years, the Apostle Paul met there face to face in a revelation with the living, risen Savior. Does that remind you of anybody else in the Bible? Now we know that the apostles walked with Jesus day by day and they saw Jesus and Jesus taught them. But Jesus has now gone away. And Paul meets with him after he's been on earth, ascends back into heaven and he comes back down and obviously teaches Paul the gospel. You ever wonder how come Paul knows, knew all that he knew? All the things that he has given us in the scriptures, again, which we will look at in a subsequent message. Jesus met with him. Who does that remind you of? Moses. Remember the Bible tells us that God came and spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a man. This is what happened to Paul in the seminary in Arabia. And so he says in verse 16 that his teaching was not from flesh and blood. It was from Jesus himself there in the school of Arabia. So how valuable are the writings of the Apostle Paul? How valuable are they as they teach us and show us? They're like a commentary on the Gospels as he shows us what Jesus did when he died on the cross. What was taking place? What exactly happened? And we do believe that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, although we cannot be 100% certain. And all that he shows us in that book, showing how Jesus was the final, once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. How did he know all this? Jesus told him. Jesus met with him and told him. And so, how dare some people question some of the things that the Apostle Paul taught in some of his epistles? We have people telling us today, That that was for that generation. That was for back then. That's not for now. Because they want women preachers. And Paul said, no. Oh, that was just for them. That's not for now. And Paul taught that a man should be head of the household. Oh, no, no, no. We can't have that. That was for then. That can't be for now. How dare they question the writings of the Apostle Paul when he heard them? By direct revelation with Jesus. Now, take that in your heads and go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's how he knew what happened. That's how he knew who Jesus appeared to. Jesus told him. Jesus revealed it to him. And so we take up with the first one. 
that Jesus appeared to Peter. We'll begin with his appearance to Peter as he says in verse 5 that he, that is Jesus, appeared to Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic word which is translated Peter. Cephas is the Aramaic for Peter and so he's certainly talking about Peter. And although we actually do not have an account of this meeting, we do have several references to it. Look first to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. I was thinking actually as the first one is his appearance to Peter. And since we don't have a record of it, there's not a whole lot to say. But there are some things that we find in the scriptures about his meeting with Peter. Here in Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, look down to verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. The only reason I mention this is because the angel specifically mentions Peter. Go and tell his disciples and Peter. Still, we don't have a lot to go to build on with that, but we have one more. Now the Gospel of Luke, if you would please. Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. And if you would please look down to verse 34. Well, we'll back up and pick up the context in verse 33. And they got up that very hour. This is the two that were on the road to Emmaus. Actually, there are some that speculate that one of those two men was Peter. They mention one of the men's names, but they don't mention the other. And some people say that it could have been Peter. But that's unlikely because of what is said here. They got up that at very hour, that is the two that were on the road to Emmaus. They got there. Jesus revealed himself to them while they were there and showed that he was risen from the dead. That very hour they returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven, those who were with them, saying, The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. So they say that Jesus has appeared to Simon. This is already mentioned. So apparently it was what happened. The first person from the scriptures that we understand Jesus appeared to was a woman, Mary, outside of the tomb, right after his resurrection. You remember, she clung to him and he said, don't hold on to me. And, and Mary was the first one to see him risen from the dead. But apparently, somewhere between his appearance to these two men on the Emmaus Road and his appearance to the disciples, Jesus appeared to Peter. I apologize that I can't give you more details, 
but we simply do not have them. But now if you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, obviously Paul was told about this by Jesus. Paul was told that he appeared to Cephas first. That's why I wanted to make sure that we understood that Jesus taught the Apostle Paul much of what he said. And that's how he knew. Now it is also true that by this time, although it is not included in the Gospel accounts, Peter himself might have often mentioned the fact that Jesus appeared to him prior to his appearance to the twelve together. That's quite possible. So it could have been known in the church community, but also, certainly, as Jesus spoke to the Apostle Paul out there in the seminary of Arabia, one of the things that was mentioned was perhaps how he showed himself to be alive prior to meeting with the others. And so this is what we have here, first of all, in our text, if you look at it now, his appearance to Cephas. And the second thing he says is in verse 5, then to the twelve. Then to the twelve. His appearance to the twelve. Now this we do know about. We have several gospel references, several gospel narratives of Jesus appearing to the twelve apostles, or appearing to the apostles as he met with them in the upper room. For this, I'm going to ask that you look at John's Gospel and chapter 20. John's Gospel, chapter 20. I know, as I said, that you are familiar with this account, but I need to point some things out here that are important to your faith. This is when our Lord met with the twelve in the room. If you look at chapter 20, look down to verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Again, you could have gone to Matthew could have gone to Luke. But here's our Lord appearing to them on the first day. This is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Remember, the disciples were hiding for fear of the Jews and for fear of the Romans. And all of a sudden, Jesus just appears in their room. Doors are locked. And in his resurrected, miraculous body, Jesus comes and appears to them. He gives them peace. He gives them assurance. He shows himself to them and assures them that it is indeed he himself. But this is the first recorded appearance of the Lord to the twelve. However, and this is what I need to point out, there weren't 12. Some people would tell you that your Bible, K 
contains mistakes and errors, that is not accurate, that it is not perfect. And this is one of those occasions. Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 5 that he appeared first to Cephas and then to the twelve. Well, wait a minute. Judas was already gone. Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, had already left the group and, in fact, had gone out and hanged himself. So he was no longer there. So if you take one away from twelve, you have eleven. How did you miss that, Paul? Not only that, if you look here in the text to verse 24, it tells us, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And then after eight days, Thomas was with them and Jesus appears again. But the first time that he appeared to them, Thomas was not with them. So we're down to 11, and you take Thomas away, and that's 10. Okay, Paul, how did you miss that? Why did you say that Jesus met with Cephas and then the 12 if there were only 10? People, you have to understand that the Bible cannot contain mistakes. There are some who tell us that the Bible contains mistakes and errors, and you have to pick and choose what is true and what is not. Liberals today would say that the Bible contains the Word of God. And that means that somewhere in here is the true word of God and you have to pick out what it is and what it isn't. And the rest is just filler or mistakes or errors or contradictions. And some would point to this passage and say that the Bible contains mistakes. Paul got it wrong. How could you do that? So how do we answer What do we say? There are many reasons that the Apostle Paul could have used the words to the twelve. And we can, as reasonable people, understand what he meant. But I'm going to just mention two reasons why it could not be a mistake. It could not be. First of all, we believe that the Bible is the very Word of God. Every word, the very Word of God. That is what we believe. And so it is all God's Word. 
And that includes 1 Corinthians 15.5, where Paul says to the twelve, we believe that is the word of God. So if there's a mistake there, that would mean that God makes mistakes. It would mean that God is flawed. It would mean that God is not perfect. And that would mean that He's no different from men. He's no different from us. Someone who makes mistakes. Someone who isn't perfect. Someone who isn't always accurate. That would mean that he's not God. And that would mean that we have no hope for salvation. Because this God is flawed. He makes mistakes. And we are fools for following him. That's if the Bible contains mistakes. If the Bible contains mistakes, if the Bible contains errors, God is not God. Because this is His Word. And if He has mistakes in His Word, He makes mistakes, and therefore He's not any different than you or I, and He can't be God. That's one. Let me just say, why on earth would we believe in a God who makes mistakes? Why would you want a God who is not perfect? I wouldn't want a God like that. And so he's not a God like that. Second reason that the Bible cannot contain errors or mistakes would be that we would then have no basis for believing what it says because it's untrustworthy. Number one, God would not be God. Number two, the Bible would not be trustworthy at all. If there's mistakes in the Bible, if there's contradictions in the Bible, if there's errors in the Bibles, how would you know what to believe? Go back to that argument a few minutes ago. It contains the Word of God, or it contains truth. You just have to figure out what it is. How do you know what it is? Who decides? We had the Jesus Seminar that got together some years ago. And they cast votes on what was true and votes on what was not true. And they used different colored beads to show what they thought was true and what might not be so true. Is that the Bible? If that's your Bible, throw it away. If it has errors in it, why are you reading it? Because then it's untrustworthy. People, you are basing your life, your walk, your eternity on this book. If it contains errors, How do you know what to do? How do you know what to believe and what to reject? The Bible does not. The Bible cannot contain errors. The Bible does not. The Bible cannot 
contain contradictions. It is, as we say, infallible. It is God's word and it is God's infallible word. That's why we say it is the inspired, infallible word of God. It's God's word, theopanoustos, God breathed, and it is infallible. Every bit of it is right. Every bit of it is trustworthy. We are not fools for following the Bible. Because God is God, and His Word is perfect. Okay, so, back to 1 Corinthians 15. How do we account for what the Apostle Paul says here? And let me just say, sometimes you have to look at the Bible and reason through some things. And reasonable men will come to reasonable answers. I'm not trying to do fancy footwork up here and trick you and tell you, look, smoke and mirrors, here's what it means and here's why. I want you to see from the scriptures and from church history why the Apostle Paul said, first to Cephas, then the twelve, even though there may have only been ten apostles in that room the first day that Jesus appeared to them. So let's follow along and see what we have. The fact, of the, the fact of the matter is, when the Apostle Paul is writing this, as I said a little while ago, this was years after Jesus had appeared to the twelve, years after his walk on earth, years after he had ascended back into heaven. And so, therefore, the church was growing, expanding, and dare I even say, maturing. Some of the apostles were already martyred. Some of them had already given their lives. And so, by the time that the Apostle Paul is saying this in verse 5, and I want you to look at it, it says, Then to The twelve. That had become an accepted phrase, a common term to describe the original twelve apostles. Ah, but again you say, Judas was gone. I'll talk about that in a minute. But this had become an accepted phrase in the church to describe the followers of Jesus, the original 12 apostles of our Lord Jesus became known as the 12. Look back in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. And here we'll see that it had already become a term to describe them. Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Speaking about Judas, And Satan entered into Judas, who is called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. It had already become 
a term to describe them. And I want you to notice this. This is speaking of Judas, who would betray him, and he is referred to as part of the twelve. Look over, if you would, please, to verse 47, when Judas actually betrays our Lord. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve. So they didn't go through the list. Peter, James, John, Matthew. He didn't go through the list. They just said the twelve. And so when Paul uses that term in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 5, it had become a common term of respect for the original Twelve apostles. And again, by this time, if you look at Acts chapter 1, Judas had long since been replaced. You cannot think that there were only twelve men following Jesus. There were more many more who were following Jesus. So the disciples, the apostles, knowing that there had to be twelve, knowing that Judas left, said they needed to replace Judas as one of the twelve. Therefore, verse 21, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Someone who had been with Jesus from the beginning, right from his baptism. Seen it all, including his resurrection. And so they put forward two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who also is called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know, who know the hearts of all men, Show which one of these you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. God, you know, show us. So then they cast lots. And from the casting of the lots, the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Matthias was one who was with him from the beginning, who followed after him, who knew what Jesus did, who saw what Jesus did. And so again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when the Apostle Paul is writing this, and he speaks of the twelve, Matthias was with them from the very inception of the church. 
Because Acts chapter 1 was prior to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, prior to Peter preaching that first sermon and the church growing and becoming the viable body that it did, covering all the earth. Matthias was already one of the twelve. And so this was a term of respect for the men who God blessed to be witnesses of His resurrection. As it said in Acts 1, the original witnesses of His resurrection. It is a term of respect as we might use for some today who would be called heroes of the faith. And people do it all the time for heroes in sports. They don't necessarily call them by name. They call them by whatever. A term. This was a term of respect to these early church fathers. And so this is what the Apostle Paul is doing when he says that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. It is not so much an accounting of those who were present at that meeting as it is a term to describe the apostles who followed Jesus. And rather than going through by name, he says, the twelve. Now this is what the church has come to understand as we see this. And we do not at all consider this to be a mistake or an error. He's not taking a head count. He's using a term of endearment, a term of respect to describe the men who followed Jesus from the beginning, and he says he appeared to the twelve. People, your Bible is trustworthy. Your Bible is dependable. It does not have mistakes. You can trust it. And as you study, if you ever come across things like this, you can study and you can find out. But know for certain, it is God's Word and it is infallible. There are no mistakes. There are no errors. And this, despite what some may say, is not an error. It was just a common term used to describe the apostles of Jesus from the beginning. Well, we will pick up with this and see from Verse 6, that he appeared to more than 500 at one time. And we'll take a little bit of a look at that. And then he appeared to Paul himself. But to our hearts today, I trust that you will see that Christ indeed died for our sins. And he was raised. And he showed himself to be alive. To Peter and to the twelve. He showed himself. He assured them that he had risen from the dead. And that assures you that when you die, you can believe the Bible as it teaches that you too will be raised again to new life. Raised to glory with God in heaven. Let's pray.